Um, all right, so let's, let's go ahead and get into the scriptures now. Uh, the kids are going to stay upstairs with us, um, and we're going to get right into John chapter 12. So John chapter 12, we've already talked about this. We've already started that, the, that Jesus is um, here with this crowd, right, that, that is going to the Passover feast. And Jesus crosses the causeway from the Mount of Olives um, to, um, to the temple, uh, to the Temple Mount, um, and he's, he enters this. And we mentioned last week, the other gospel writers put this in a different place. Um, we celebrate this on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before uh, Resurrection Sunday. Now, I always tell people this about the, the church calendar, the liturgical calendar. The days that things are observed do not necessarily correspond to the actual day that it happened. Jesus wasn't born on December 25, year zero. Okay, um, uh, for one thing, you want to you want to really mess with your head. Um, those of you that that know a little Latin, what does deca mean? Deci, ten. Why is the twelfth month of our year called the tenth month? And why is November the ninth month, um, our eleventh month? In fact, September. The seventh month is marked as the ninth month. Um, why? September, October, septa, septa means seven, octa means eight, nova means nine, deci means ten. Why? Because the Roman emperor uh, Augustus Caesar, his dad, added a month to the calendar, Julius Caesar. Guess what month that he added? July. And Augustus Caesar was such an egomaniac that he wanted a month himself. And so he added August, and rather than just keeping 10 as 10, they moved it to 12, because that's why Rome fell. They can't do math. Anyway, um, so, so Jesus was not born on December 25th. Um, we don't really know how Easter is supposed to... We, we have two competing theories on how you're supposed to calculate the date of the resurrection, uh, Easter Sunday. One went out in the west, one went out on the east. That's why Easter moves around. Um, and sometimes uh, Western Orthodox, Western Easter and Greek Orthodox Easter are different days. Right? It has to do with how you calculate the Passover and the new moon and a bunch of, of fun stuff. So... Although we observe Palm Sunday, uh, John actually says that it's five days before the Passover feast, which puts Jesus' Last Supper on Friday. And there's all kinds of confusion. Don't worry about that stuff, all right? Um, There's a reason for everything. I don't want to get into all the details of how things are calculated in days and things. But what happens is Jesus... And John chapter 12 and verse 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They spread palm leaves, um, palm fronds on the ground, um, and they start to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So what are they doing there? What are the people doing there? They're declaring Jesus to be the king, the Messiah, the descendant of David, the root of Jesse, all of these messianic titles, the son of David, the king of Judah, the king of Jerusalem, um, all of these ideas. They, they want to see Jesus as their Messiah. And I'm very intentional about the way that I'm describing that with the pronoun. They want to see Jesus as their Messiah. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, 
Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Um, now, here is an interesting moment, an insight into John and how he writes the gospel. Uh, this is a quote of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Um, would anyone like to look at Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 and tell me what's, what's up with John's quote here? Zechariah 9.9. 9. Zechariah is the second to last book of the Old Testament. So start in Matthew, go back to Malachi, and then Zechariah, you'll find it. What does Zechariah 9.9 say? John quoting that? What did he change? Fear not. That is not in Zechariah 9.9. Now the rest of it is very clearly a quote from Zechariah 9.9. John borrows from another passage. Isaiah 40. um, And I'm going to read it for you. Isaiah 49. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Um, If you look at Zechariah 9.9 and Isaiah 40, you will see a number of parallels there. Um, And John combines these two. He brings them together. Uh, This is not uncommon for gospel writers. Um, uh, I wish there was a technical term for it, but I'm going to invent it. I'm going to invent a term. Are you ready? I'm going to call it clooming. All right? Um, So glomming glomming is when you take something and you stick it together. All right? Linguists talk about how word sounds glom on. Um, We have a glomming sound. Um, uh, now English doesn't have glomming going on very much. We don't do it a whole ton. English does the opposite, which is called ecliding. All right. You guys want to hear an English ecclision? Why do we not pronounce it knigget? K-N-I-G-H-T. Night. K-N-I-F-E. Knife. And when you were a kid, right, what, what did we do, right? We just, we just, our teachers told us what? Those are silent letters. That was how a teacher explained it. Those are silent letters. And I remember being a kid going, so why don't we not invite them to the sentence? 
Now, the realism is that English does what's called ecclision, which means that we tend to, to drop things. There's something called the great vowel shift. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. But the word, uh, usually, if you see a silent E, how many of you kids have been frustrated by silent E's learning spelling? Why? Why is that E there? For another word, this has nothing to do with sermon. Why is eagle spelled the way it is? E-A-G-L-E. Shouldn't that be eagle? All right. Um, what happened in English was that the, the, the vowel in the middle of those words, like knife and name, they used to be knife and name. The, the i in knife became long, so it became knife, which just sounds weird. And the a in name became long, so you got name a, which didn't sound right. So then the e just got smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually it just dropped off. All right? um, same thing happened with the k. Um, Knife, name, that's what we have. That's why we have silent E's. It's called ecclesian. Um, now you know. All right? I try to give everybody something fun. Um, so I call this cloming. All right? This is where something gloms on. How many of you have ever studied German? You'll know what gloming is. In German, how do you make a new word? Just add a word. It doesn't matter what the word is. Just stick another word on it. Stick it in the middle, stick it in the end, stick it to the end. The words are 773 characters long, and it means I walk to the store with a, a, a jumping gait. Right? Um, Icelandic and, Norway, and, and Norse languages do the same thing. They glom. They just keep sticking stuff up. Well, I call this cloming. Cloming. It's when a clue is glommed together. Two clues are glommed together. So cloming. Right? Not clubbing. That's something different. Um, cloming. Cloming. Uh, cloming. C-L-U-M-M-I-N-G. Don't spell check it because it doesn't exist. Um, However, what is happening with John is he is cluing his readers in to two important facts about Jesus that he did not know at the time he was watching Jesus enter Jerusalem. He did not understand. Look at what John says. He says his disciples. So look at the way that this is read. All right, Jesus, in verse 14, Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king, is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. In case you were wondering, when Jesus got on that donkey, he did not turn to his disciples and go, and now I will quote Zechariah 9.9 so you can put it in your book later. This is something that John realizes after the fact, after he has been through everything with Jesus, after he's been through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, he's worked his way through being a pastor and an apostle for decades and decades. Remember, this book is written to the second and third generations of believers. He says, what we didn't realize at the day was that Jesus was fulfilling Isaiah 40 and verse 9 and Zechariah 9, 9. Those two verses are declarations of war. Let me go back to Zechariah 9.9 so that you can get the context of it. Um, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, uh, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. We like to stop there, but keep going. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river, that's the, 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 um, the Tigris, to the ends of the earth 
As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold of prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. John realized years later with hindsight that Jesus crossing into Jerusalem was a declaration of war. And he quotes two prophetic passages that show the Messiah, God himself, declaring war. But declaring war on who? That's where the crowd gets it wrong. They think, oh, Jesus is coming, and he's declared war on the religious leaders who have been telling us how to live our religion. He's going to take them down because he's unconventional. He's unorthodox. He's got all these extraordinary beliefs. He's so good at shutting them down. Jesus is coming to declare war on the religious leaders, and he's going to give us freedom, and he's going to give us access to the temple, and isn't that great? But Jesus wasn't coming to declare war on the religious leaders. We talked about the number of times they confront him and Jesus just leaves. Oh, Jesus is declaring war on the Romans. Awesome. Jesus is going to put us together in an army. He's going to give us swords and spears and stuff. We're going to have slingshots and trebuchets. That's just a fun word to say, trebuchet. All right. Um, we're going to have all these things. It's going to be awesome. We're going to fight the Romans. We're going to throw them out. Jesus is going to be our king. He's going to rule Israel. He's going to rule the whole world from Jerusalem. It's going to be fantastic. They think Jesus is going to declare war. That, by the way, seems to be what Judas Iscariot is waiting for Jesus to do. Judas wants to get going. By the way, it seems to be what Simon Peter also wants Jesus to do. That's why Simon Peter is always like, I got a sword. You know? He's a terrible shot, by the way. He swings for a guy's head and hits his ear. That's completely trying to take his head off. You're swinging the wrong way. Um, but, you know, these guys, they think, they think Jesus is here to declare war on the Romans. He's here to declare war on Judaism. He's here to declare war on oppression. They want him to be their Messiah. But John realizes Jesus is declaring war on something else. Look who comes with Jesus. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, that is John's code for when Jesus was resurrected. When Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Jesus is declaring war on death. That's why Lazarus is with him. That's why John is the only one who tells us about Lazarus' resurrection. He wants us to know why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified and to be raised from the dead. 
See, the other three gospel writers, if you read them, they kind of read it like, they're kind of like, and we knew Jesus was going and that he was going to die. But Jesus, in John, he's going into Jerusalem not to die, but to be raised from the dead. He's got to die to do that. But he's declaring war on death. Remember what John wrote in John chapter 3 and verse 16? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish. What's perish mean? Die, but have everlasting life. What did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? He said, if I give you the water, if, I, if you drink of the water which I give you, you shall never die. Jesus is declaring war on death. Not just the temporary death that we all die. But death as a force in the universe. Death as the uncertain. Death as the the end of the trajectory. He's saying, here I come. Try and stop me. Here I come. Go ahead and kill me. Here I come. Go ahead and take the lives of those who follow me. Because guess what? I am the resurrection and the life. It gives me chills, man. Jesus declares war on the one thing none of us can escape. You live a perfect life, you still will die. You live a terrible life, you still will die. Um... I know people that smoked three packs of cigarettes a day and died in a car accident at 102. And then I know people that for no apparent reason contracted lung, lung cancer and died in their 30s. Girls I grew up with. Two of them now. I don't know what was wrong with the town we lived in. We, we, we are all basically... Living from birth to death. And the human experience is, as soon as it starts, is going to stop. And this is, I mean, this is cause for us to throw on black trench coats, paint our fingernails black, spike our hair, and listen to emo. And let's just get in some screamo music and get, get it over. It's, I mean, it is. It's, um, I mean, uh, 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 John Paul Sartre, right? Life is a useless passion. We're all going to die. Right? He also had one of my favorite quotes ever, which I would put on a T-shirt if it wasn't going to be so awkwardly. If you don't know who Jean-Paul Sartre is, he wrote a work, he wrote a, a work and in it he has my favorite quote, which is, hell is other people. Um, yeah. Yeah, you can, you, can see, you can see how that would be a problem putting that on a T-shirt. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I am going to get, though, for, I want for Christmas. Anyone wants to buy me a shirt? I want the one that says, I was social distancing before it was cool. I want that one. Um, but uh, these, these, these philosophers, Nietzsche, Sartre, they, they, I read all these guys. Um, I even dared to read Nietzsche in German. Talk about glomming. Um, but uh, the, I read all these guys, and ultimately what the nihilistic view is, what they arrive at is, what's the point? We're all just going to die. It's all going to decay. It's all going to fall apart. Science fiction has this thing called the, the heat death of the universe in the 70s and 80s. Every science fiction book was all about how the universe was going to end. All right? Um, uh, kibble, uh, uh, not, not kibble, um, 
not kibble. Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, uh, Philip K. Dick said that uh, uh, chaos always increases, right? We're, our world, we live from life to death, and Jesus declares war on the one thing none of us can avoid. And he says, I'm going to show you that I'm sovereign over that too. What are we so afraid of about letting God, letting Christ be sovereign over all of us? All of me. Sovereign over my... Yeah, we, we all talk about, you know, wow, we want God to be... God's going to be sovereign, so we're just going to, you know, we're going to commit. He knows he's got his will, you know. People always say, you know, God never gives you more than you can handle. I'm not sure that's true. Um, you know, sometimes God gives you more than you can handle, so you can realize you're not supposed to be handling it by yourself. Um, so uh, so we, we, we turn to God when we're in crisis. We turn to God when things are broken. But if it's not broken and we don't need fixing it, we tend to be sovereign over the parts of our lives that we think we can control. And the parts that we aren't sovereign over, the parts that we think we can't control, we just pretend like they don't exist. We live in a society that pretends like death doesn't exist, don't we? All the 50-year-old women with so much cosmetic surgery so that they look like they're 20 years old. And they don't. <laughs> when people are, are, are reaching the end of their usefulness of life, what do we do? We put them in storage tanks and wait for them to die. And when they die, what do we do with them now? We, we, we try to get as far distant as we can. We have an, and this is nothing, I'm not knocking the profession, but we have a whole profession of people. We have a whole class of people whose job is to help our loved ones die so we don't have to be there for it. I've been in far too many hospital rooms where a doctor walked in and said, well, all we can do is make them comfortable. Do you know what that means? It means we're going to dope them up so they don't know they're dying. That's what that means. We distance ourselves from death. We don't want to be a part of it. Um, I've been present when, a, when people die. It is a part of life. In fact, I've been present more with that than I've been present with people being born. I've only been present for one birth and no, don't invite me to another one. Well, I've been present for two, technically, my own and my daughter's. I, but I don't remember much about the first one. Um, I've been there when people have died. We, we, we don't know what to do with it, right? We're not equipped for it. We, we don't know how to experience. We don't know how to go through it. Um, I had a friend who was a, a missionary's kid. Um, came to the U.S. At, at 13 and was sitting in youth group and they were talking about death and all the kids were getting all like squeamy and, and growing, don't talk about that. And this kid goes, what's the problem? I, I saw people die like all the time because he lived in the Amazon and that's what happened. It was part of life. But, but our society, we're, we try to distance ourselves because what, we, what we're willing to let God be sovereign over, what we're willing to let God be sovereign over is a small set. Then the things that we want to be sovereign over are a big set. And then things like death, those things that we can't control and we can't be sovereign over, we just hide them away. Jesus says, I'm sovereign over all of it. He 
was going to march to his death knowing at any moment he could have stopped it. You know that? Now, people talk about, well, Jesus could have called down legions of angels and stopped it. He didn't even need to do that. What did Jesus have to do to avoid being killed? It was simple. He just had to say, I'm not the Messiah. Don't follow me. And he would have been able to live out his life happy, old, in Galilee. It was easy. But it wasn't his will. God, Jesus declares war on death. The disciples could not, and here's what I want you to kind of grasp on this, could not have possibly understood that that's what he meant when he marched into Jerusalem until he died and was raised again. They could not see his declaration of sovereignty until placing their faith and trust in him, struggling along the way, he revealed himself and was glorified and then they could look back and see his sovereign will. It is okay for us not to understand what God is doing. Uh, I just redecorated my office. Uh, I put up on my on my wall, I put three guitars. One is my bass that hopefully I'll never have to play again because I'm not a bass player. Um, one is my dad's bass guitar um, to remind me that he was my first guitar teacher. The other guitar is Ron Jones's guitar. Uh Ron will have been gone for 10 years next year. Ron was, I found out later, apparently, according to his daughter, I was Ron's best friend. It came as a surprise to me. I didn't know because um, he's considerably older than me. But Ron was my inspiration. He was my joy. We'd be practicing and we would sound terrible. And Ron would say, it'll be great. And then he would proceed to rip off a 12-minute yes jazz fusion that he just memorized, you know, just played. You know, God is sovereign over that. And I sit there and I go, why, why, take, why take Ron? Why take Greg? Um, the dedication of my dissertation, I, I name both of those men as inspirations to me. Why, why God take them? Why, 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 would, why would God take uh, Sharon DeLisi? Why, why would God take those that we love who serve and, and are devoted? But is he sovereign over death or not? Is he in charge or Not. We walk through our lives like the disciples, confused about what God is doing until we get on the, the other side of the tragedy and the darkness. And as we walk in faith, we start to realize God is in control. Are you willing to admit that? Not with your mouth, but with your heart and your soul.
Are you willing to admit to yourself that although you don't understand, He is sovereign? Are you willing to admit, though He takes us through the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why? Because you are there with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When we, we recite that all the time at funerals, and I don't think people get it, he is sovereign over death. And so he says to us, John says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go forward. Live your life. Honor the scriptures. Honor the covenants you have made in your life. Be better. Be faithful. Not because you think that that earns you points, but because He is good and He is faithful and He is sovereign. You say to me, I'm not cool with that. Okay. I'm not going to try to persuade you. I'm going to tell you. It's a lot more comfortable living in a world where God is sovereign and I am not than believing that everything depends on me. I get so tired of trusting myself. I get so tired of believing that I have to be sovereign. But when I can just rest in the hand of the one who's in charge who is sovereign not over life not only over life but over death and resurrection man then i can find joy in the things that were dark i can find god's will in the paths that i didn't want to walk i can look forward to the day when we get together with those who have gone before us my dad one time said to me and i'll close with this i said to him dad everybody you know is dead he said to me, he goes, yeah, he says, but going to be one heck of a reunion. Now, if you don't know my dad's friends, that is going to be a very bizarre assemblage. Um, he attracted some weird people. Um, but is he sovereign for you today? That's it. Are you willing to trust him not only with the eternal future, but the present Eternal. Would you join me with a word of prayer? Jesus, may we find our comfort in your power, your absolute, uncontested sovereignty over birth, life, death, resurrection. May you be enough in the moments when we need more than we could ever summon. But also may you be enough in every moment for your glory and honor and praise we ask solely to know you and your resurrection. Jesus, you are Lord of the universe.
You are the head of the church. You are our Savior, Redeemer, first brother, friend, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the resurrection. 